Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishak Garnadjani. I'm joined today by Judith Serkis, professor of history at Rutgers University. She is the author of the book, Sex, Law, and Sovereignty in French Algeria, 1830 to 1930, published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. How did you come to this project in the first place? So, uh, well, it's sort of a classic story of a project that uh, grew out of my um, first book, and um, uh, which was uh, Sexing the Citizen. And in that book, I had a sort of brief discussion of uh, French Republican efforts to bring secular schooling uh, to Algeria in the 18. 18- uh, 70s or really the 1880s and 1890s and uh, realized in the process of uh, researching and writing that small section that uh, there was just uh, a kind of immense uh, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, investment in uh, the kind of figure of a sexualized uh, Muslim uh, Algerian Muslim religious difference uh, that uh, functioned as a sort of, you know, uh, a kind of cliche or stock uh, in arguments about uh, why either secular schooling in Algeria would be uh, necessary and helpful or why Algerian difference would um, make secular schooling an impossible project. Um, and so as I was uh, kind of completing work on that book, I realized that there was this uh, immense kind of body of uh, discourse uh, surrounding uh, the kind of sexualized Muslim uh, uh, Algerian difference that um, we sort of knew some things about by you know, kind of work that had been done on the history of uh, kind of, you know, French Orientalism um, and uh, kind of Orientalist depictions of uh, North Africans, uh, but very little work that had been done on the specifically legal and uh, policy dimensions of uh, that discourse. Meanwhile, as a historian of gender and sexuality, I was uh, very familiar with uh, the rather immense body of work that had been done on uh, parallel sets of questions in the history of the British Empire, uh, and in particular on British India. Right, so I was partially just uh, struck by the um, uh, 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 difference between um, the amount of work that had been devoted to these questions in the history of British imperialism um, uh, versus the history of uh, French imperialism, especially in Algeria. Um, This was also coincident with the re-explosion of uh, the uh, debates about uh, the um, uh, the veil or the Islamic headscarf in France, which was a uh, subject of which I kind of focused the conclusion of my first book. Uh, and while it's, you know, kind of uh, familiar um, already at the time to invoke the histories of uh, colonial fantasies and their uh, reanimation in those uh, debates, I was interested in trying to 
make more precise um, what those connections uh, might actually be. Um, so uh, essentially, that was the you know kind of the the, the initial node uh, that got me started. Um, and uh, in particular, what I noticed in working on the 1880s and 1890s was uh, a real fixation on the category of Muslim personal status uh, as definitive of Algerians at once uh, sexual and religious difference. And as something of a novice to the field of uh, you know, Algerian uh, or French, you know, the history of French Algeria uh, and also uh, legal history, I became kind of obsessed with this uh, category. Uh, essentially, what I started to do was try to, to, to research the history of the category of personal status. And um, I uh, realized the extent to which, um, and, and essentially I was like, where did this category come from? Um, and, uh, you know, in kind of reading both the uh, kind of history of colonial law and colonial jurisprudence and uh, the historiography on the question, uh, I realized, right, that it was a uh, French category. <laughs> Right. Um, and, you know, it kind of took me way back in time to the history of Roman law and the influence of Roman law on French Ancien Regime law. And uh, what was striking is that in a lot of the historiography on um, the uh, uh, kind of legal, legal subjection of uh, Algerian colonial uh, subjects, in a sense, the category seemed to be taken for granted. Um, or presumed as self-evident. And part of what uh, really kind of, you know, launched me down the path of uh, this kind of, you know, genealogical work into how, when, and why it comes to be uh, the uh, uh, defining uh, category and characteristic of when uh, it once sexualized and religious Algerian Muslim difference um, uh, became really the point of departure uh, for the book. And so you you actually begin this book with taking us through some of these these images, these these tropes. Um, and I was really curious about how you parse the relationship between these these pretty ubiquitous things and the specific and pretty granular shifts in the colonial legal order um, that your book traces. How, how do you go about showing that specificity and that change when it seems like these things were, as, as I said, ubiquitous and, and difficult to, to make sense of if, um, if, if you're sort of saturated by them as it seems like you were with all of this material? Um, so, so this is where doing the genealogical work on the category of personal status was so uh, crucial and important. So I really began um, in the moment that uh, I was familiar with it, which is to say the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, and started to work backwards. 
right? And in particular, the first vein that I pursued was uh, in the discourses on uh, polygamy, right? Which of course is, we, we know, you know, kind of, you know, starting with the kind of trope or figure of the harem uh, that we're familiar with um, from, uh, you know, Delacroix's, uh, you know, 1834 painting of Algerian women in the in their apartment is a kind of you know familiar trope of uh, Orientalist representation. Um, but what I learned in basically immersing myself in uh, colonial legal discourse was that for a period of time uh, prior to the 1860s, right, um, the discourse on polygamy was intimately bound up, especially with um, Saint-Simonian uh, 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 descriptions and discussions of uh, the Algerians' relationship to land, right? Um, and it was, uh, in fact, understood to be more, or they framed it as an economic institution rather than necessarily uh, a religious institution, right? So this was my kind of first hint Right, that the question of representations of uh, sexual and religious difference needed to be connected in some way and were connected to the history of uh, uh, basically French projects of expropriation. Right, so that uh, in a sense, what uh, came to be understood as uh, a discrete domain of uh, family law, which is the kind of uh, domain covered by the category of personal status, which is to say, you know, laws regulating uh, the uh, family, I mean, marriage, uh, divorce, um, uh, and uh, the uh, guardianship of children uh, I need, needed to be understood in relationship to the history of uh, property and property law, right? So while there's a kind of repetition in uh, discourses about uh, polygamy, right? They did not function in the same way uh, consistently over time, right? Um, and so taking this genealogical approach helped me to see uh, how, when, and why it was that uh, the kind of difference that was uh, contained in and uh, regulated by what gets called uh, personal status uh, needed to be understood in relationship to projects to expropriate Algerian land. Uh, and uh, so that's already an example of how uh, I was looking for how figures kind of return repeatedly, but also uh, change in their um, uh, 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 a legal and ideological function over time. And uh, uh, I was able to kind of uh, isolate the moments in which uh, personal status gets uh, legally deployed. Uh, first, uh, actually in relationship to uh, Jews and several, a number of cases and legislation in the 1860s. 
uh, in which, uh, because Jews were also Algerian uh, colonial subjects before uh, 1870, they too were framed and figured as having uh, culturally, uh, civilizationally, uh, and religiously specific uh, 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 laws. Uh, with respect to the Algerian Muslims, uh, it was actually, as I show in the book, an 1873 land law, land you know reform law that specifically set aside a uh, 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 personal status as a domain that would uh, supposedly be um, uh, preserved, uh, you know, uh, 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 intact uh, by uh, French, uh, uh, you know, French law, um, uh, while uh, Algerian land uh, in the, basically the kind of most desirable uh, areas of uh, the uh, territory would be quote unquote Frenchified uh, and subjected to French civil law, right? So the, the project was to produce a cleavage or distinction uh, between uh, property law as applied to land and uh, to set aside family law as the kind of, you know, true heart of Muslim law, right? Uh, according to a set of arguments uh, um, uh, in which uh, basically, uh, you know, kind of, you know, universal economic principles could be applied uh, to the titling um, and uh, 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 sale of land while uh, the kind of, you know, family and religion uh, were the uh, site uh, and heart of uh, Algerian Muslim difference. Um, so part of what was crucial here for me to um, relay in the in the book, right, is that um, intimate connection between the project to expropriate Algerians and uh, the production of uh, a set of uh, ideas about. Uh, their religious, familial, and sexual difference. Specifically, it's ideas about Muslim sexual privilege and perversion that facilitated, as you write, quote, sustained discriminatory and violent operation, end quote, of these colonial categories. And so out of the noise of all of these images and, and these tropes that are so familiar to us, um, what is it about those particular things that you've pulled out, um, sexual privilege and sexual perversion, that allow us to get from point A to point B in, in your story? How is it that those things end up being part of a story about land expropriation and the law? Um, so uh, one of the things that was so striking to me, and this is where, you know, uh, you know uh, you know, my you know, training as a you know you know French historian you know helped me to kind of you know uh, you know identify and see uh, you know kind of aspects of how this discourse was operating. Right, is the um, the incredible weight of the language of privilege, right, which of course has uh, you know a, a sort of deep connection to the history of the French Revolution, 
Right, so one of the things that was so striking in looking at the emergence of the, the, the legal identification of uh, Muslim persons as uh, incapable of uh, exceeding to full citizenship uh, as long as they maintained their Muslim law was the way in which this was weighted with an idea that uh, their family law endowed them with privileges uh, that uh, in a sense, it would be unfair for them to be able to maintain and uh, exceed to the status of, uh, of full citizen. And this is already outlined in the, um, the 1865 uh, Senatus Consult Law that creates a distinction basically between colonial subjects uh, who are French nationals, but who are not citizens. Uh, and uh, so the, the mobilization of this language of privilege was uh, very symptomatic uh, in my view, right? And they, you know, you know, we have but you know, politicians and jurists who fixate on the figure of polygamy as the exemplification of this privilege. Uh, and you know, there you have your know, jurists and politicians who essentially are saying over and over again, it would not be fair, right, to allow Algerian men to maintain a right to polygamy, right? And again, this is in the language of French politicians and jurists and also be uh, French citizens, right? So this actually very much recalled uh, sets of arguments that I elaborated in my first book where I um, describe how um, uh, basically conjugal marriage is understood as a regulatory structure, not just uh, for French women, but also for French Republican men. And uh, there's a way in which the idea uh, that, uh, you know, Algerian men needed to sacrifice this privilege in order to accede to uh, status as, uh, you know, equal subjects, right? That they, in, in a sense, the, the sacrifice of polygamy would be uh, the uh, a sign and exemplification that they were willing to exceed to kind of an, an equality before the, the law, right? So uh, this then functions as a regular justification um, uh, for why uh, Algerians should not be uh, uh, permitted to be uh, at once uh, citizens uh, and uh, continue to follow uh, you know, or have a, a Muslim law jurisdiction. It also functioned to explain why uh, they would be uh, unable and unwilling to do so, right? And it underwrites the idea that they maintain a deep investment in uh, this uh, right or privilege, sexual privilege, and that this right or sexual privilege is part and parcel of their deep investment in uh, uh, Islamism, right? So there's a kind of a, a, a sexualized representation of, uh, you know, kind of their uh, religious 
uh, or what come to be defined right as uh, their religious commitments, right? Uh, which according then to the logic of the 1873 law can be cleaved from their uh, uh, relationship to property, right? So one of the um, uh, points that I tried to make, right, is uh, the, the way in which jurists and politicians place uh, uh, kind of, you know, affect and investment on the side of uh, the family and sex and religion, right, uh, is to suggest, right, <laughs> that uh, uh, you know, people did not have uh, the same kinds of uh, affective and intimate investments uh, in land, right? Which is a pretty crafty way to organize uh, and legitimate expropriation, right? Which was what the 1873 law was explicitly designed to do. Right, so that they, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, suggest that affect lies on the side uh, of, you know, family and religion, right? But that, uh, you know, a, a, a savvy, uh, uh, you know, member of, uh, you know, a large, uh, a large family that had uh, communally owned property uh, could take advantage of the new 1873 law and sell off a parcel and uh, force his entire family uh, to sell the land, right? So that there's a, a you know, a kind of a, a, a relationship between the modeling of an affective economy uh, that is distinguished from uh, an, you know, imagined relationship to, a, you know, land or material economy. And, and that, really makes me want to ask you more than about one of the places where you locate um, these, these images, these turning points in, in why and how the shift occurs. And that for you is the realm of fantasy. Um, and it's no less real than the laws and the lands or the persons that you write about. In fact, it is precisely this fantasy that animates these objects for your argument that allows them to, to operate in the way that you've described for us. Um, could you tell us more about how you narrate that fantasy in a book that, you know, based on how it's shelved or, or categorized is, is, is really a book about the law? Um, well, so part of what I'm interested in are, you know, the, you know, what I describe as kind of affective investments in the law and fantasies about the power of law itself. Um, so that's, you know, that's number, number, number one. Um, but really the, my turn to, to, to thinking uh, um, with and about fantasy was uh, generated by uh, a question, right? Um, there's a way in which one could say, you know, okay, obviously um, this was a, a, you know, a highly effective uh, strategy of, uh, you know, dispossession and uh, of subjugation, right? So that uh, jurists and politicians uh, instrumentalized, you know, arguments about, uh, you know, kind of Algerian men's, you know, sexual privilege and, uh, you know, excessive patriarchy in order to justify uh, 
expropriation and to put into place legal mechanisms that made that possible. But in saying so, I felt like there was that kind of question that was, um, that was begged in making that assertion, right? Um, because it could not fully, I mean, the, 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 the claim of instrumentalization um, could not fully account for, in a sense, why those are effective arguments. Right, and um, the extent to which the kind of, you know, the figures of uh, the polygamy, repudiation, forced marriage that all got kind of attached to uh, the category of uh, Muslim personal status, um, you know, kind of return obsessively in the discourse, right? Uh, and I wanted to try to understand, uh, uh, you know, kind of how and why that was. And to understand, right, why, uh, in a sense, you have these politicians who go on and on about the, you know, this, uh, you know, kind of polygamy as a form of privilege, right? which indicated to me a kind of level of, um, you could say, uh, identification, uh, jealousy, right? I mean, you know, as I said, you know, you basically have politicians who are saying, it's not fair. It's not fair for these men to have uh, sets of sexual rights that we as citizens are in principle, unable to have, although of course, uh, given as we know, and as uh, some critics would point out, right, the um, uh, you know the legal organization of prostitution in France um, over the course of uh, the 19th century meant that there was a kind of you know uh, informal uh, system of uh, you know uh, at least you know men being able to have uh, multiple sexual partners. Nonetheless, at the level of their uh, kind of legal discourse, they claimed that this was uh, an excessive form of privilege, right? And as a result, their you know ideas about and fantasies, really fantasies of uh, uh, of uh, Muslim men sex, right, is, you know, generative, in my view, of their legal discourses, right? And simply calling that instrumentalization, uh, for me, could not fully account for the extent of the, um, uh, the investment uh, and the repetition with which the figures, uh, with which the figures return. Um, and, uh, so this is where I kind of turn to the Lacanian idea of extimacy, right, as this, you know, kind of projective uh, identification and jealousy of, you know, in a sense, the uh, uh, pleasure of the, the imagined pleasure of the other, right, as a structuring component of uh, the articulation of, uh, of, of fantasy of a kind of you know, integrity, a presumptive integrity of French law that carries within it, right? I, um, I, 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 I kind of a 
intimate identification with and repudiation of uh, an idea of Muslim law, right? So the, there's a way which I'm part of what I'm trying to understand is how it is that those fantasies of Muslim law inhabit uh, and structure uh, the idea of the kind of you know sexual integrity uh, of uh, uh, and homogeneity, presumptive homogeneity of uh, of French law. And over the course of your book, you've really found um, places for what you call the cultural life um, of of the law and of the consequences and articulations of the French project in Algeria in a really staggering number of, of types of places. <laughs> Could you say more about how you practiced sort of archival um, searching, uh, reading itself? Because it seems like with this vast array, you might need to sort of um, temper and adapt uh, those practices um, from from maybe a, a situation in which you were sort of exclusively exclusively reading legal texts and then coming to a conclusion that way. Um, well, I guess that I mean that you know in answer to the question, I mean this goes back to um, the you know my effort to kind of understand uh, the kind of you know recursive figures of uh, uh, you know, Algerian uh, simultaneously, and I tried to explain why they're connected, right? Uh, religious and sexual difference. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that a, a kind of purely, you know, formal um, uh, and, you know, contained focus on, uh, on legal texts um, could not adequately account uh, uh, for, uh, in a sense, the, the broader cultural life um, that, in my view, uh, animated uh, uh, the juridical, uh, juridical discourse. And then there were times when, you know, literally, I mean, it's, you know, it's like you can't make it up. So the, you know, uh, the figure, that, you know, with whom the book finishes, right, the, uh, uh, the jurist who is also a novelist, um, you know, kind of made the connection um, explicit, right? That, um, you know, on the one hand, he, uh, you know, uh, you know, tried um, and, you know, discusses his, you know, work as uh, uh, he was uh, initially in um, uh, uh, areas with uh, uh, Kabyle customary, Berber customary law courts. And then went on to write a, you know, series of prize winning books that uh, just elaborate the kind of, you know, fantasied figure of the, uh, you know, the uh, you know, girl child, you know, victim of uh, forced marriage in which his uh, kind of fetishization and eroticization of the, you know, the, the child bride, uh, you know, kind of leaps off the page, right? Um, in, in ways that, um, in a sense, you know, kind of, you know, performed my, you know, argument for me. Um, uh, but it, in a sense, it was precisely because I did all of that reading um, that, uh, you know, I, you know, I developed the argument based on having uh, read, uh, you know, a profusion uh, of these texts. 
right? So this to um, kind of you know you know answer the question or kind of related question about the um, kind of archive uh, in relationship to theorization. But I did not, uh, you know, approach this project uh, as one in which, like, I have this idea about the kind of extimate uh, uh, relationship between Muslim, uh, uh, you know, colonial constructions of Muslim law and uh, French law. I actually began the project, as I made clear, with a far more straightforward kind of, you know, Foucauldian genealogical uh, uh, approach. Right, where I was going to like you know track the the genealogy of personal status, um, uh, but in tracking that genealogy, which I you know that's kind of one through line of the book. The other issue that I'm trying to uh, uh, unpack, right, is that recursive uh, uh, you know, repetition of uh, familiar figures. Right, uh, and it was basically in and through the you know kind of deep immersion in this archive that I said, okay, you know, I need to sort of layer on top of uh, or supplement the genealogical argument uh, with uh, a kind of you know psychoanalytic framework that can help to account for the um, processes of uh, uh, repetition. Uh, as well as the uh, the, the moments of uh, rupture or, or break. And so it seems like um, what's at stake here historiographically is the relationship as, as you lay out at the beginning of your book and you return to at the end between three related for you, but not always related um, sets of questions. And so the one is about the role of fantasies of sexual difference being foundational to legal theory and practice. The second is about um, so-called French universalism and the rule of difference. And the third is about legal pluralism. Could you tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about these interventions while you were writing the book and, and if they had something to do with one another for you because yours is, um, a book which which is very um, you know adamant about those things having to do a lot with one another, um, and so I, I wondered how how you came to that as you were thinking about these questions. So uh, I think that uh, you know one um, uh, you know you know clear aim of the book right, is to, in, in, in trying to understand uh, what I you know, have just described as the extimate relationship between um, uh, French law and Muslim law or colonial constructions of Muslim law, um, uh, is to uh, think about their kind of constitutive uh, relationship, but rather than framing uh, the, uh, the Algerian uh, colonial legal project as in some way exceptional to uh, uh, kind of fantasies of the homogeneity um, of, uh, of French, you know, of a, of a kind of unified non-plural uh, French, French law, right? Because the project of the civil code in many ways was, as I described at the beginning of the book, right, to eliminate legal pluralism and then, you know, uh, you know two and a half decades later, right, you know, Algeria immediately poses the problem of uh, legal pluralism, 
right? Their colonial legal pluralism, right? But uh, as I try to make clear, right, one of the things that jurists are doing uh, in managing the problems posed by legal pluralism is kind of imagining and reinventing fantasies of the homogeneity uh, and, you know, gender and sexual superiority of uh, French law precisely in relationship to a set of fantasies about Muslim law. Uh, and this is important, right, because uh, we're still living uh, with these fantasies uh, in French legal discourse about French law uh, today. Right, so uh, in a sense, by uh, uh, refusing the idea of the colonial legal exception um, uh, and thinking about the way in which this history of the kind of the problem of managing, uh, uh, you know, Muslim law as a site of uh, projection and denegation, uh, how it is that it could live on after the end of, uh, uh, you know, formal end of colonialism, right? So it's, in my view, it, um, it, it helps to understand, you could say the kind of post-colonial afterlives of uh, these fantasies, which as I suggested at the beginning was really kind of one of the points of departure um, uh, of, the, of the book. And in trying to, to write this with all of that, um, sort of w w with all, with all of the, the nuance that you've laid out for us, I was struck by in an early footnote on, on Carl Schmidt and, and, and Agamben on the state of exception, you remark really precisely on, I'm, I'm quoting the quote, risk of stabilizing conceptions of the rule of law. And then you refer to the work of other scholars um, who you're building on in, in, in talking about the quote, simultaneous force and insecurity of colonial law to make and unmake landscapes and persons. And so when what's at stake for you precisely in, um, in your relationship to these debates that you just laid out for us, on the level of a writing problem, how did you go about walking that tightrope in between letting these forces um, dissipate into, into nothing on the one hand, that one extreme, and then on the other, making them seem totalizing and completely overdetermined. How how do you write in between those things if what's at stake is the story of how that came to be? Um, so uh, I'm very glad that you you know that was like a you know I I I, I did compress like a you know a, a very large amount of you know theoretical reflection. Um, into that one sentence. I think in the original version of the, the introduction, I had about like five pages on it. So, um, but uh, so you, you know, you zeroed in on, uh, you know, a point that was really important for my own thinking and that and animated a lot of the exposition, but uh, whose uh, theoretical uh, background I uh, removed from the actual text. Um, so you're absolutely right, and you you know note the way in which I kind of you know have this little play on uh, Schmidt, where I describe sovereign indecision or legal the 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 the, um, the, the importance of, of attending to legal indecision, right? And so my aim is, in a sense, not to uh, uh, you know fetishize or reify 
ideas about sovereignty, right? And that is, you know, one of the the, the deep investments uh, uh, in the book, right? And this is, you know, kind of famously one of the kind of strong critiques of uh, Schmidtian account is that it, you know, or the left Schmidtian account, right? Is that it ends up, <laughs> you know, re uh, uh, reinvesting. Uh, that uh, idea, um, uh, that idea of you know, purely decisionist uh, sovereignty. At the same time, I would say that uh, indecision is not the same thing as arbitrary, right? And I think that that's crucial, right? So I map moments of indecision Right. For example, in debates about how to define uh, the family in the titling of land, right? Is it going to be the extended family or is it going to be the conjugal family? Right. And what appears in the moment of debate over the implementation of the land law is how do we define the family? And you have all these jurists and you know, land surveyors realizing that they're not even sure what the family means. Right. Um, but this is not to say that they're working with a completely arbitrary definition of the family, right? There are specific stakes involved in um, assuming one position or, or the other. So I'm interested in thinking about uh, those uh, uh, kind of crucial nodes or problems as uh, indications of, uh, you know, I, as I describe it, right, indecision, right? legal confusion, but which is not the same thing as saying uh, that uh, it's purely arbitrary, right? And um, uh, this is related to a set of arguments about in a sense taking the uh, project of implementing colonial law seriously, right? Um, uh, and uh, not, as a result, and this is the uh, kind of other side of the equation, imagining that the rule, you know, rule of law means, uh, you know, by definition, uh, you know, kind of, you know, you know fair-minded, you know, procedures, right? Um, it's clear, and this is, you know, where the book begins, right, that the project to implement a system of law is basically to regularize uh, expropriation. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, effectively manage uh, the government of colonial subjects, right? And that is clear, you know, when the architect of the, uh, the, the legal system comes up with the plan in 1834, right? I mean, he makes it clear, we need to have laws in place so that we can smooth the transfer of property. Because during the first four years of uh, kind of, the, uh, 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 of conquest, it was, you know, a mess, right? And this is the, the, you know, the first chapter, right? And so they, you know, the fact that a military, you know, purely, you know, military uh, 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 rule um, uh, was completely ineffective. Right and raised, uh, you know, I mean, you know, brought about immense destruction of both property and uh, human life. Uh, provoked massive resistance, not just uh, uh, obviously on the part of Algerians, but also on the part of uh, metropolitan uh, colonial critics. So the architects of the colonial legal order said, "Look, we're going to make this legal." 
And that that was absolutely essential to the legitimation, literally, uh, of the project, right? It was, you know, they promised that it would, as a result, be less costly, um, which was a principal concern of, uh, of metropolitan critics uh, of, the, of the project, who also were worried about the deleterious effects of uh, being engaged in uh, completely brutal, um, uh, uh, you know, campaigns of "quote unquote" pacification. Um, so, uh, in a sense, you know, I mean, so I'm, you know, kind of working um, through the, you know, the paradox of what does it mean to have a colonial rule of law um, uh, that, uh, you know, you know, is not dismissed as completely arbitrary. Um, uh, nor, uh, uh, you know, kind of idealize as um, some, uh, some idea of uh, a kind of procedurally pure rule of law. And if these are some of the kind of things we're left with once we're, we're finished sort of going through the story with you, I'm, I'm really wondering how then we might sort of extend this outward into, into how we teach as well. Um, particularly when we teach histories of France, if we are teaching about um, imperialism, you said kind of one of the one of the things that brought you to this project was thinking trans trans imperially. Um, if we're writing about the law, if we're teaching about uh, gender and sexuality, um, how does this change how we teach undergraduates about these these historical objects? Um, so, uh, well, you know one. Um, kind of, yeah, I, I, I think you've touched on, you know, in, in a sense, all of the, all of the fields that I'm, um, I'm hoping to, hoping to reach with the book, right? So, um, and as it happens, you know, I'm actually currently engaged in you know, kind of organizing uh, a program in the teaching of law and history to undergraduates and eventually graduates at Rutgers. Um, so, uh, I'm really interested in um, uh, looking at law as a, a site where we can, and this is also, I, I think, very important for our audience. Uh, we haven't you know, spoken much about intellectual history, um, but you know, now might be a good time to talk about that too. Um, I, I you know, really became interested in thinking about law as a site where we can, uh, you know, deeply examine the connection between, you know, you know, discourse and representation and practice, right? Which is a, you know, kind of, you know, constant, you know, question or problem for, you know, intellectual historians, right? How do you demonstrate uh, that? Okay, you know, you know, these people were thinking these things, but you know, how did it sort of matter on the ground? Well, let me tell you, right? When you look at a land reform law that literally matters on the ground, <laughs> right? Um, but it also, um, my, this is my other um, point, right? Changes how we think about the ground, right? Because in a sense, what the land law attempted to do, right? Was to, you know, transform the kind of legal identity of the land, right? And imagine it now as French. Right. And understanding, you know, what happens when, you know, you have the, you know, the law kind of making claim to the ground and then, you know, producing an idea of, uh, you know, sexual and familial difference uh, on the other side, I think is, um, you know, it, 
immensely helpful, both for, you know, thinking about, you know, intellectual history and, uh, and thinking about the history of the law. And I, and, and to, you know, to, you know, to add to that, I'm also interested in thinking about um, the relationship between, um, you could say, kind of, you know, the affective uh, and the material, right, in thinking about uh, uh, kind of investments in law, right, um, uh, and not uh, cleaving, shall we say, questions about, um, you know, identity or constructions of identity from uh, thinking about material investments, but actually trying to understand how those um, things get, uh, uh, are, are mutually implicated uh, and become connected. Um, so the project is also very much in uh, dialogue with uh, indeed, uh, you know, people um, who, uh, you know, work on, you know, other contexts and other, uh, other uh, empires, right? So I've been, you know, part of a broader community of people uh, interested in uh, thinking about uh, the kind of global history of uh, family law exceptionalism, right? You know, in the American case, uh, as well as, you know, in the um, case of uh, British India, and I, you know, could give, uh, you know, many, many more examples, but uh, there's a way in which this story, and I'm, in, you know, vested in this, you know, thinking about this story as connected to a broader set of global legal processes, um, uh, and that is not caught in uh, an opposition between kind of, you know, for example, French and British models uh, of, uh, of imperialism. Uh, as I explained, right, the French assimilationist project in Algeria was not remotely interested in assimilating Algerian people or legal person, right? The assimilationist project was interested in assimilating Algerian land, right? So that, you know, aspects of what, you know, kind of, uh, you know, could be described as, you know, forms of uh, associationism or indirect rule in a sense were maintained precisely for the domain of personal status. Meanwhile, uh, as my uh, colleague uh, Julie Stevens has shown for British India, right, that you know British like use the category of personal status, which historically was kind of a French, you know, and Roman, right, so continental category, to think about how to construct the colonial legal order in uh, in British India, right. So that rather than seeing these as kind of you know kind of competing uh, uh, models of uh, of imperial. Uh, rule, right, there's the, uh, just a lot of um, uh, cross-fertilization, you know, there, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, as uh, Katya Pravilova has shown, right, they, you know, there were, you know, Russian, you know, you know, Russian, Im you know, imperial projects and the Caucasus drew on, uh, you know, French uh, colonial you know, jurists who wrote about Algeria, right? So that there is like a kind of trans-imperial circulation of these uh, ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, thinking trans-imperially uh, and, you know, transnationally in terms of the kind of, you know, legal history of, uh, you know, capitalism on the one side and the constructions of identity-based religious you know, and sexual difference, um, uh, you know, the, the project is to kind of think those things uh, together and understand their, you know, how they um, grew up together.
so um, connected to that point about intersectional thinking, um, under, understanding um, uh, specifically, uh, you could say the, um, the, uh, the, the history of the racialization of uh, religion, uh, in particular with respect to uh, Muslims, uh, and how and why it is that uh, ideas about sex, affective investments in ideas about sex became uh, and were, in my argument, part and parcel of the, that process. Uh, it's a process that I describe in terms of corporealization, right? So I don't actually use the word race quite deliberately um, because I'm interested in thinking about the process of embodiment. Right, and I feel like you know I, I decided that to use the language of racialization could potentially get in the way of understanding uh, uh, the process of the kind of embodiment of law that I argue takes place through the kind of implementation and governance through the category of personal status. I think those are my 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 four four takeaways. I I, I hope that's enough. <laughs> no, it's it's plenty. And for anyone um, interested in teaching your book, I hope they pay close attention because that's very useful. <laughs> I I wanted to end by asking you. There are moments in your book where sometimes it's um, sort of a, a gesture at the end of a sentence, but sometimes you really dig into it. You you really um, are. Are constantly reminding us about the endurance of these issues and these relationships and how they continue to animate and as you said earlier haunt um, po political questions today really life and death um, high stakes questions could you say more about how your conclusions allow us to think of the problems of sex of the family of if not racial difference then you know colonial difference and its transmutation into a racial question as it endures in France and, and elsewhere? Um, well, it, you know, all one needs to do is kind of, you know, open the, you know, Le Monde, um, you know, on a, on a daily basis to see uh, the extent to which these issues are uh, alive and well. Um, uh, the, uh, law passed uh, uh, last year uh, designed to combat so-called uh, Islamic separatism uh, contained within it several uh, provisions for uh, criminalizing uh, polygamy. Um, this is not by chance, right? Um, and, uh, you know, my, you know, clearly one of the aims of the book is to suggest Right, how it is that, uh, in a sense, the the logic of the construction of a sexualized difference uh, produces and performs that uh, corporealization and corporealized understanding of Muslim difference that uh, basically comes to then underwrite ideas about how and why it is that uh, uh, Muslims uh, can never be, uh, you know, despite you know, ample demonstrations to the contrary 
uh, fully fully French. And as I tried to make clear in our discussion about the kind of problem of the you know kind of exceptionality of uh, colonial law, right? My argument about thinking about how uh, you know fantasies of Muslim law are constitutive or were, you know, across the 19th century and into the 20th constitutive of a certain fantasy of the homogeneity of uh, French law can help us to understand uh, uh, their persistence uh, after um, the, uh, you know, end of, uh, formal end of uh, uh, French uh, Algeria. Um, and I can also say that that is um, at the heart of the project of my next book, <laughs> which actually turns to the, uh, precisely to the, uh, to the, to the post decolonization period to track um, the, 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 the transformation that one's repetition uh, and transformation of these figures. Because again, that's, a, you know, the other crucial point that you've so helpfully uh, pulled out, right? You know, I'm not arguing that it's, a, you know, you know, that some kind of transhistorical fantasy, right? I think part of the critical work of uh, being a historian is being able to demonstrate and to try to understand those dynamics of repetition. But then it's also essential to think about how and why it is that uh, these figures and fantasies are being deployed. Um, you know, at this moment, uh, and for uh, a, a distinct set of reasons uh, that nonetheless continue to worry over, uh, you could say, the uh, coherence and um, uh, coercive power of French sovereignty. 